When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Taking Care of Lady Business, where we put the business back in lady business. Hosted by Jennifer Justice, founder and CEO of the Justice Department, a management strategy and law firm that works with female and woke male entrepreneurs, executives, talent, brands, and creatives to build and maximize their wealth, focusing in the areas of tech, consumer product, finance, media, entertainment, and fashion. Jennifer interviews entrepreneurial women who have done it all, who will be sharing their secrets on all things business, especially as a woman. These highly successful women will share strategies and insights, including what not to do and what it takes to win. And now, here's your host, Jennifer Justice. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Taking Care of Lady Business. We're putting the business back into the lady business. Today, we have a very exciting guest. We have Divya Gugnani. She's the CEO and co-founder of Wonder Beauty and, co- and founding partner of Concept to Co. Welcome, Divya. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm yeah, I'm really excited. Um, you have there's so much to talk about with you, which before I didn't even know um until we had like this pre-call and I was like, oh my god, you do all this other stuff? Like, who knew? I was like, we need like a four-part session with you, probably. But let's just start with what you're with the company that you have now, Wonder Beauty. Um, and what led you to start that? And then we'll get into really the other meat and bones of it. So Wonder Beauty really came out of personal pain points. And so many female founders start businesses because it's, they have some friction in their own life. And for me, the friction was I had two kids within two years. You have twins. So yeah. you're like the double whammy. So, yeah. you know, two kids within two years, career mom, working, commuting every day. And, you know, getting very little sleep to no sleep, getting up in the morning, getting on the F train subway from the Upper East Side of Manhattan to Midtown and wanting to arrive at work, not looking like I hadn't slept all night. Mm -hmm. So needing that under eye concealer that happens on the F train, like dab, pat, like make myself look better, like maybe brush my hair, maybe put a little sunscreen on, like my beauty routine, which used to be this laborious, beautiful thing that I enjoyed. And like, it was a ritual before having children and working like a maniac then became this like rushed, like stressed, like I have 15 minutes to deal with my hair, my body and my face. And like, mm-hmm. I got to make it count. And by the way, I'm doing it on the go because I'm a time starved woman who's on the go, who's multitasking all day long. And so I realized there was no beauty brand that was actually servicing me in the way I was living my life. And then when I was going to the gym, women were doing their skincare routine and on the subway, people were doing their makeup. And when I got to work, women were doing their hair at their desk at work. So I created this brand, Wander Beauty, with my co-founder, Lindsay Ellingson, to create clean beauty essentials things that are really truly clean. And we were looking to the EU, which is far more advanced in terms of standards for clean than the US. Um, So clean beauty essentials, things you reach for every day, wherever you wander. And that's why we created the brand because we were kind of going through it in our real lives. 
Oh my God. I love that. I did not know. Wonder. Okay. I get it now. Who knew? See, but you had a whole career prior to that. Like, where did you start out to then? Like, I'm going to start this, you know, beauty company. So I started my career in investment banking at Goldman Sachs. I was an analyst for two years and I slept under a desk. I loved every day of it. I'm like a diehard, like I think it was the best training ground for my career. I thought it was amazing to go work at a big firm. More than anything, I learned culture. Like, yes, I learned finance skills, but more than anything, I learned culture. They used to always say there's no I in Goldman Sachs. Mm -hmm. And that's something that carried with me for my entire career, thinking about the contributions and the value of a team over an individual. And so I worked in investment banking. I worked in private equity. I invested in late stage businesses. I sat on the board of several companies. I then went into venture capital, invested in earlier stage businesses, and got you know exposed to very dorky stuff like fintech and health tech. Um, and then I took a leap to become an entrepreneur really by happenstance. I started a company while I was working full-time as a venture capitalist, ended up scaling and selling that business started another business, which didn't scale and didn't sell. So humbling experience learned from that. Everyone has to get knocked around a few times to really Mm -hmm. appreciate their success in life even more. And then my third business I raised venture money for, it grew like a rocket ship and sold it 11 months after receiving funding to QVC. And so, you know, I've co-founded four businesses. I've sold two of them. I'm running one of them. I've had a lot of time to you know, operate and build and scale businesses. And so I've also had this opportunity to, with the two exits that I've had, create my own fund, which is Concept to Co, um, where I have two people working with me closely um, to invest my capital back into the ecosystem to kind of change what I saw as a female founder. When I went on a pitch and I raised money for every single company I founded, except for the first one. So the three companies that I ran after the first one, I raised angel money. I've raised family office money. I've raised private equity money. I've raised venture money. I've sat on the other side of the table. I've been that woman of color sitting on the other side of the table, pitching my business. And I realized that there were no other women on the other side of the table that looked like me Mm -hmm. and had my experience and had gone through the things I'd gone through. And so to change that ecosystem, we as female entrepreneurs and women have to put money back into the system. Right. I mean, that is the whole concept, right? That like the patriarchy isn't serving us. So when we do, you know, have those wins, you know, we can put it back in there. And, you know, look, we started lending circles, you know, we did all these things to support each other. We're you know, we're the ones who everyone looks to, to support, um, you know, uh, nonprofits and put money in. And so it's like, it's, and it, now it's like doing it in a for-profit way. It's really helping build that matriarchy and helping women who just don't get that access to money, you know? And so did you have those experiences though? I mean, knowing that the statistics are, you know, only 0.5% of women of color get funding and, you know, not at 3% in general women. I mean, were you having those same kind of issues when you're sitting at the table? You know, it was so interesting. I found the biggest difficulty is that, you know, Warren Buffett always says, invest in what you know. And I actually believe that too. And I think what's difficult about the venture economy in particular is that as a woman of color, female founder, creating a business that services mostly women, then you have this 
people sitting across the table who aren't the end consumer of your brand or business. Mm -hmm. So they don't know it and they don't understand it. Therefore, they don't invest in it. So, so many of the no's are just coming from this lack of basis of knowledge and lack of being the end consumer. And so I think as we have more female investors in the ecosystem, you're going to see them know and understand these female economy driven businesses, and you're going to just see them flourish and grow. You know, and so many times people say to me, oh, you know, well, I don't, I haven't sold a business or I don't have money to invest. That doesn't matter. I think we as female entrepreneurs, female professionals, we vote with our wallet every yes, day. Yes. You, every purchasing decision that you make, you can make it mindfully and thoughtfully. Like I'm wearing Gia Penta loungewear right now, which is a female founded business. And mm-hmm. I'm wearing jewelry from Nature the which is a black founded, you know, jewelry brand. And, you know, my makeup is from Wander Beauty and Tower 28 Beauty, two Asian co-founded businesses. And so, you know, to me, every step of the way we can make a difference and we have to be the change we want to see in the world. Yeah, for sure. I like, um, you know, somebody I just had on the other day was saying like, you know, hit them with their wallet, you know, because we do, we control the purchasing power. And so why not, you know, walk the talk basically with the, with the money that we do have. Um, so when you, with these other four companies, were they servicing women? What kind of companies were they? So this is bizarre. So my first business was in the auto parts sector. Um, which is that makes sense. (laughs) Random. I was like dating someone who was like really into cars. We started this business together, like out of my apartment. It was like really bizarre situation and it scaled and it grew and we sold it. So that's amazing. But, um, then I was like, I want to be an entrepreneur in a space that I'm passionate about. So I had gone to culinary school. I love to cook. If anyone follows me on Instagram, they know I'm always cooking up a storm And I started a culinary media company called Behind the Burner, which is actually featured in a global American Express ad campaign. And I was a short form TV host on NBC local. So all the like local networks. So that was one of my businesses, which was, you know, didn't scale, didn't grow, didn't sell. So learned a lot from that. What's really tough about media and sponsorships is that you get money in one door one day and like then you're waiting for the phone to ring for like six weeks at a time. I know. Yeah. You can't scale the business when it's relying on out um, outside advertising. And you can't, you can't rely on them year over year because the brand's, you know, mission might have changed, you know, or the person that was giving you the money has left and there's a revolving door of CMO. So it's a really hard business to like, just rely on that. hundred percent true. And then I, also, um, I also then started a business in the tech space, which was more consumer tech. It was called Send the Trend. It was a subscription service for fashion accessories and private label beauty. And we built a proprietary algorithm for intelligent shopping recommendation technology. And um, we had a lot of engineers and we built this amazing, you know, we were collecting data point over a million data points a week on our site. So if you were in St. Louis and it was raining that day, we were servicing your web browsing experience with umbrellas. Mm-hmm. And so, and if it was sunny in Seattle, you were seeing sunglasses. And so it was just like really interesting how we built that experience and, um, and used a lot of geolocation and then raised venture money for that and sold it. So I've created businesses in every different space and sector. There hasn't been a common theme. I always tell people like, you know, I'm a Renaissance woman. I'm always like, learning new things. I love to learn, always be learning, I think is really my motto as an entrepreneur. There's nothing I can't learn. 
Right. No, it's, I mean, it's a good way to, to go about it, but you know, I think in general, a lot of women feel stuck and, you know, it seems like you kind of came up with understanding the vernacular and in investing and raising that, you know, so you have an education that's completely different than most women who, if they've come up in like, you know, more of the creative side or the PR marketing side, just don't have that. Right. And so when they get to the C-suite and when they get like in that table and they're taught, people are talking about P and L's, they're like, um, I'm not sure what that is. And you're afraid to actually like ask because you look stupid by then. And you're like, wait, what do you mean you don't know? And it's, well, I'm not from the business side of it, you know? Um, and I feel like that's just a common theme that comes up, you know? And so when you're looking at businesses and concept to co, like what is interesting to you? Like what is it in the founder or the product? Like since you've been agnostic about everything as it is, you know? So I'm highly founder driven. I've yeah. invested in 74 companies in the last 21 years. And I find that the best referrals investments that I make these days are all through a network of my founders who I've invested in. Mm-hmm. So I've invested across so many different sectors, but the common theme is that I believe in people and I take a people first approach to every investment and betting on a founder in the early stages to deliver um, and execute on their vision. And on the later stages, it's really about, you know, people product distribution, if they have a product or service, and also can the founder recruit the right talent and is the C-suite the right C-suite to build out that business. So I'm highly people-driven, highly referral-driven from people in my network. So a lot of the deals that I do really come from entrepreneurs that I've backed, and I find that to be the best referral source for me, that network and that ecosystem. And I really, as an entrepreneur, also believe highly that people overlook something super important about their career. So many women are looking on LinkedIn or on in magazines to women that are more successful and have achieved this and that, and they want to be mentored by them and they want to learn from them. And like sometimes just forget about all that noise. Like you're in it, in the weeds every day, running a business, dealing with operational and strategic challenges each and every day. Don't underrate the value of peer mentorship. People who are also in it at the same stage and size are going through what you're going through. And so I really believe in peer mentorship. And that's been great to build an ecosystem within my fund of founders that are all going through similar things. Yeah, no, it's so true. I mean, that's like, it's like building that tribe that's going to be honest with you because, you know, we don't all do it. Like I didn't have the same background as you and, and experience and, and just because you don't have your background does not mean that you can't start a company, but there's definitely things that you need to learn and you need to hire around in those people. And that's part of it is understanding that, you know, it's like, it's odd with women. Like we don't, I say this a lot. So, but I like, we don't do our own hair. We don't do our nails. We don't watch our own children. But for some reason, when we start businesses, we think, oh, we have to do it all ourselves because we don't want to, it's either imposter syndrome or we don't want to bother somebody or we think that we don't have enough money when like you actually need to spend money to get money, you know, and you need to make sure that it's set up properly, your business and everything. You hit on something that I think is super critical for every entrepreneur to really have in their toolkit is to be self-aware. And so you just said this to me, like, we think we have to do it ourselves and like, we have to hire around you. Like the first thing you need to do is take stock of your own skills. Yes. What are your skills? Yeah. Who are you? What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? And you need to bring people on your team that are game changers that can fundamentally change the business and the trajectory of the business by bringing on skills and bringing on 
you know, expertise that you don't have. Right. And then, but, you know, when you meet founders, do you, is that what you look for? That they're self-aware or is like, there's, that's another thing. I, a lot of times I meet founders who are just know-it-alls and just don't. And I told you, I'm not a know-it-all. I'm a learn-it-all. Yeah. I know I don't know everything and I'm ready to learn anything. Yeah. I think that I look for learn it alls. I look for people who are intellectually curious. I look for people who are coachable. Right. Because we are all making mistakes. I'm a four time CEO and making mistakes in my daily business. Yeah. So I feel strongly that that's the mentality you need to have to be successful in business. And so, how do you know who, you know, what, so what kinds of things that you see that women are doing right that makes you want to invest? What's attractive about that? You know, I think um, creating businesses that really speak to them and their own pain points. So that to me, as I mentioned early on, is important. It's like, is there a problem? How are you uniquely positioned to solve that problem? What is it about your background, your expertise, your career, your life, your culture? It could be anything, anything that shapes your experience as a person. What makes you the right person to start this business and to grow this business and to recruit and retain the talent that will build this business? So I, you know, really look at that. Um, I think in, in terms of industry, I'm always looking at large market opportunities, not niche opportunities. Um, and really, is there a large market? Is it a growing market? Um, you know, changing uh, themes and trends in economy for, you know, a recent example that's you know not related to person, beauty and personal care, which, you know, I invest very heavily in, but, you know, millennials are living in a shared economy and Gen Z, same thing. They're not owning apartments, they're Airbnb, they're renting, they're not buying cars, they're using Uber and Lyft. And so they're not buying diamonds and they have ethical concerns around, you know, mining and diamonds. And so my genre of female entrepreneur was like, oh my God, I'm going to like work really hard so I can buy myself the diamond tennis bracelet. Yeah. I'm like, this is my sign of success. I'm going to like, I don't need a man to buy this for me. I'm going to buy this for myself. Yeah. It's so interesting that the next generation of Gen Z and millennials doesn't feel that way. Yeah. It isn't investing in that way um, and sees their life completely different, which I admire and appreciate. And I've, you know, gone down that path. So this was a long time ago purchase. So um, <laughs> I love that you're wearing it though. <laughs> yeah. I gotta own it when you say yeah. it. So, and then now we're just seeing a huge proliferation of lab grown diamonds, synthetics. Can this be applied to other industries besides just jewelry to cell phones and to home? And so I'm looking at really different sectors and areas where I see shifting trends in the economy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's good. Example of how I see the universe and then how I'm playing on the universe. And right. So if you're investing and you do you only invest in women? No, I invest in, um, I have a lot of male entrepreneurs, especially over the years in tech. Most yeah. recently, I've been allocating more and more dollars to female founded and co-founded businesses, but also just in general to minorities. So right. I do some recent male invest um, investments that I've made into male co-founded businesses, but they're uh, all minorities. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of times, you know, women get pigeonholed into saying like they just do CPG or like you said, like things that you want to, you know, pain points for yourself, you know, and sometimes that can be seen as more of like serving like a big, you know, serving a lot to a little. Like, Mm -hmm. is that interesting to you? Like it's a real market. Is that large market to you? I'm in 
the consumer space in a very meaningful way, particularly in personal care and beauty. Because I'm a beauty founder, I see a lot of beauty businesses. I'm also very involved in Sephora Accelerate, which is an accelerator program. And I see a lot of early stage businesses because of my own experience as a founder and also through the Accelerate program. And so I work with a lot of early stage founders. And so hence I end up deploying a lot of capital in this space because I believe the beauty market, unlike many other markets, is very active on the M&A front because mm-hmm. you think about creating an apparel company or an accessory company, there's a very limited of universe of acquirers for those brands and businesses. However, when you're in beauty, there's a large array of potential acquirers. So the Revlons, Estee Lauder's, L'Oreal's, P&G's, um, Unilever's, L'Occitane, like just look at the M&A activity in the last week. Milk makeup got acquired by a SPAC. Pharmacy was bought by P&G, um, sold to Gennaro, sold to L'Occitane. So if you look at the activity in terms of M&A in the beauty space, beauty conglomerates often don't create their new innovation pipelines. They buy them. And so there's a big yeah. appetite to buy into this area, and that's why I invest heavily in it. Because as an investor, all you want to do is to see a return on your investment. And I see a return because I know every brand gets acquired. Right. That's true. That's true. I mean, at what, at what stage do they have to be to get acquired? All different stages. Yeah. I've seen brands get acquired at very early stages by PE firms that then want to put in professional management and then sell strategic acquirer and conglomerate. And I see brands that scale really rapidly on their own venture and private equity money. And then they, you know, get acquired by strategic. So I'm seeing, I was one of the first investors in Dollar Shape Club sold for a billion dollars to Unilever. And I've been in many other brands that have sold along the way and had earlier acquisitions. What are some of the um, newer portfolio brands that you want to talk about? And so people can, you know, put their, their dollars, pay with their wallet. What is that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I invested in a brand called Topicals, which is um, from a very young, amazing, talented black founder who was a track star um, and I, I have, I do have a common theme. I do invest in a lot of athletes. I was an athlete myself and I really feel like the discipline that you learn as an athlete and the camaraderie and the teamwork that you learn as being, you know, a teammate that those skills are transferable to being a, a good founder and CEO, um, an operator. And so, um, I'm really excited about topicals. Topicals is really a, a Gen Z skin brand that's disrupting the way we think about chronic conditions. And so they're scaling really nicely at Sephora and on their D2C. I invested in Tower 28, which is a clean color brand, um, which is scaling and growing really nicely. Also at Sephora, Asian founder. And I just invested in a hair company. I have only two hair investments in my entire portfolio. So Madison Reed is one that's obviously scaled very nicely. And then I just invested in Shaws and Keeks, which is rooted in a Indian hair rituals and also just really um, planet positive. So I'm really like investing in lots of different entrepreneurs, different ethnicities, different types of minorities. And I am excited about it because I think their businesses are amazing. Yeah. And so when you're investing, is there like a minimum that you have that you like to? Yeah. I mean, I really, it depends on the size and the stage and if it's an area that I have a lot of domain expertise. Um, so I write checks anywhere from twenty-five dollars to $500,000. Yeah. And I would say my average check size is kind of in the one fifty range. Right. And But all of these products have been launched, right? It's not like pre-seed. I mean, I've done some you know, pre-seed seed deals, but yeah. they've all had sort of 
product ironed out in some way. Yeah. Not necessarily launched, but thought through and the pipeline was ready. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's kind of one of the things with this podcast I want to do is like help women understand what this all means. Like what is a pre-seed? What is seed? And then when does it go to series A? And then how do you do, you know, what, what's the difference between a safe and a convertible note and all these different things, you know? It's all graying. So when I was a venture capitalist and started in the market 20 years ago, it was, you know, you bootstrapped, you bootstrapped, you bootstrapped, and then you raised a series A for three to $5 million and you had solid revenue traction and you had a real business. Yeah. And then it was putting money behind a real business. Now it's like this notion of pre-seed and seed. And it's like, you could be pre-product, you could be pre-MVP, you could be pre-service yeah. and be raising money on an idea, or you could be about to launch and be in a seed round. Um, and seed rounds could be a million, seed rounds could be three million. Yeah. And Series A are getting bigger and five, I've seen $5 million plus $7 million seed rounds. And so the world has changed dramatically. The amount of funding that people are raising is just gone through the roof. I think people used to wait to raise funding. Now everyone is like with an idea wants to raise a round. So is that always a good idea though? Really? You know, I really, I think I really believe philosophy, raise money when you need it, not when you think you want it. So raise money exactly when you really, there's a pain point where you need the money. You have to service orders, you have demand, you have something that you're putting the money against that is vital and critical to your business. And I also believe in raising what you need plus 10 to 15% mistake capital because we all make mistakes. Yeah, no, that's a good idea. I find that women always want to raise less than, than that or like wait too long and it takes us so much longer to raise money, you know? So, I mean, when is that right time? Like how far out? Is it like a year, six months, you know? And how, and what the capital requirements are. If it's a capital intensive business, you may have to raise money from the get-go. Right. Building, you know, you need to hire 20 engineers to build your product. Like you're not going to be able to do it bootstrapping. Yeah. you could have your own money in your, to put in the business. So it really depends on the business that you're creating. And I always say, like, literally hold off as long as you possibly can. Right. Um, because you want to retain as much ownership as possible. If you believe right. what you're creating, you want to own as much of it as possible. Do you want? Can you talk just a tiny bit about that? Because I know we're, we're coming up on time, but, like, uh, explaining just nuts and bolts. Like, when you raise money, how that dilutes you. So... Essentially, if you raise what we call an equity financing, so the equity financing can come in many forms. So it could be angels, individuals that are high net worth individuals that invest in your business. It could be a family office that has, you know, money from an industry that they've, you know, they could be a beverage family or they could mm-hmm. be a hotel family or they could be an industrial family that diversifies their personal capital by investing in startups. So it could be a family office. It could be angels. It could be an institutional venture capitalist who's looking for a rapidly growing business that's going to need a lot of capital. So venture capitalists are looking for high growth businesses that are going to scale and need capital. Or it could be a private equity fund that's looking for a more mature business that has you know, positive cash flow, and it's going to have maybe lower growth requirements than a venture fund. So it really depends on what the size and stage of your business is, what capital you match yourself with in the equity side. But when you raise a financing, 
whether you do it in the form of a convertible note, which is a debt instrument. In mm-hmm. early stage, a lot of people choose deliberately to raise a safe or a convertible note, and that is a debt instrument, not equity, and is an option to convert into equity when you raise a priced equity round. Mm-hmm. So what happens is you may raise a $1 million or $3 million safe that is debt. It is not on your cap table. Those people are not owners of equity in your company at that moment. But then when you raise your series A, that safe converts into series A preferred stock at a certain discount, typically right. 20%, 15 to 20%. It could be anywhere from 10 to 20%, but typically 15 to 20% discount to that series A share price. Those note holders will convert to become equity holders at that event of a qualified financing of a certain dollar value. And they will get a share price that is 15 to 20% lower right. than the CSA investors that come in. Yeah. And so that's how that works. But also there's this notion that a lot of people who have a product-based business and they're, they want to get financing of their purchase order. Suppose you're scaling at Target or scaling at Walmart and you have a business that's positive cash flow and you just need money, working capital to put back into your vendors to make more product to then sell it to um, your end retailer. You may be able to get purchase order financing or bank financing and have a bank line or potentially look into venture debt. Right. So you may decide not to give anyone any equity ownership in your business and simply use the debt markets and borrow money instead of getting investors. Right. I know that's the one thing. It's like people go, Oh, I raise as much money. I'm like, okay, but how much of the company do you own anymore? You know, how much control do you have? As much ownership as possible. Yes. You can. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. This has been amazing. Thank you so much. I mean, I literally have learned so much, you know, just even talking to you. Um, So I always ask everybody though, one um, final question for, you know, it's always women and, and typically the, you know, the advice I ask everybody this, what's the worst advice you've ever received? The worst advice I've gotten was to trust people who have more experience than me. I often find that to just not be true. So as literally like as an entrepreneur who's creating a new business and a new sector or a new space or it's disrupting a market with a product or service, you're thinking about your business and your services in a new way. You're also thinking about your customer experience in a new way. And so as an early entrepreneur in my second business, for example, someone really who was an investor pushed me to hire a very seasoned sales exec. They're like, you don't know how to sell into this like, you know, media sponsorship market, which is true. I didn't know how to do it. And hire someone with gray hair who's done it before for 30 years, is gonna get you leads and knows the market. And like hire this person, pay this expensive salary on a consulting basis initially. And like warm leads, 30 days, warm leads, 60 days, warm leads, 90 days. Didn't close a single deal. Meanwhile, I was closing deals and I was like in my twenties and had no idea what I was doing. So like my point is that don't always trust people who just have been in the market and have gray hair and have a long resume. Sometimes you're doing things a different way. Trust your trust your intuition and trust your skills to do things sometimes a different way. I mean, I think that uh, applies to everything, right? Because yeah. it's like we, you know, women are forging their own paths because there's so few of us ahead. You know what I mean? So we're doing it all our own way and we're, you know, 
that you, most of the market that we are addressing hasn't been addressed ever. So it's like, it's all the wild, wild west. This is awesome. So if, if somebody wants to get in touch with you to say, I have the, the best new business for you to invest in or, um, or whatever, and buy Wander Beauty, all of the things, how do they get in touch with you? Wander Beauty is on wanderbeauty.com. Yeah. Um, the best place to shop us, all of our exclusive new launches, everything in our clean beauty essentials are on wanderbeauty.com. Although we are at retailers globally, Net-A-Porte, Nordstrom, Sephora, I'm now launching Neiman's and also Blue Mercury. But we uh, can be found on social at wander underscore beauty. Um, and if you want to find me personally, the best way to find me is at dgugnati. So it's D G U G. N-A-N-I, and I answer my DMs for the most part. I get a lot of DMs and I try and answer if people have entrepreneurial questions or want advice. Like yeah. I try to get through as many of those as I can. Thank you. That's awesome. Well, thank you for coming on this episode of Taking Care of Lady Business. We loved having you. And until next time, let us know who else you want to hear from or other topics you want to cover. Um, and until then, I'm Jennifer Justice. <laughs>